Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Let's get down to our sermon today. Uh, today, uh, we are going to start with, surprise, surprise, some history. <clears throat> Welcome to Northeast. Okay, so uh, I don't know if you know this, but the way that, uh, the way that ancient cultures dated time was based on the ruler who was in charge. So, uh, for example, Luke, who writes one of the four Gospels, shows us how this happened in the, in the first century. Uh, Luke says, in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, you see, the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was ruler of Galilee, he names many other rulers there, and he gets to the bottom, he says, it was at that point the word of God came to John the Baptist, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And off we go into Jesus' ministry. So my point here is that Luke was a man of his time. He actually dated Jesus' ministry based on the life and the reign of the emperor Tiberius. And that's how things were. Until about the 6th century when a monk named Dennis the Short came along. And he suggested a new way of dating things that revolved around the birth of a ruler even greater than Tiberius. Well, we know this ruler is Jesus. Uh, He's the king of kings in our book. And uh, the dating system uh, today is the BCAD dating system that you're probably familiar with. BC stands for before Christ. AD is Latin for Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. Uh, So that would mean that in the technical sense, we are AD 2021. We're living in the 2021st year of our Lord. And I find it fascinating that today you can't write a check, you can't put a date in your schedule on your iPhone, you can't sign and date an important document without acknowledging the birthday of Jesus. Now, with that being said, most people assume that Jesus' birthday happened uh, in the year, in the year what? Zero, right? We assume it was zero. There's two problems with that though. Okay, problem number one is that there is no year zero. Historians apparently cannot do math, so they went straight from 1 BC to AD 1. I kid you not, there's no year zero. The second problem is that according to all the historical resources we have available, we're pretty certain that our friend Dennis got it totally wrong. Uh, In fact, he didn't just miss Jesus' birthday by a few days or a few weeks, he missed it by several years. It's not in 1 BC. BC, it's not in AD 1. We're we're relatively certain of that. Here's how we know. Uh, There is an ancient historian named Josephus, and in his Antiquities of the Jews, he tells us that uh, Herod the Great died right around the time of a lunar eclipse. Now, we need Herod the Great alive for Jesus' birth story to happen, right? You know, in Matthew chapter 1, he plays the role of the villain. He's like trying to figure out where Jesus is from the wise man. He kills a bunch of children. It's really, really bad. He's a bad, bad dude. Right? Thanks to science, we can date every lunar eclipse to happen. Did you know this? Thanks to the mathematical calculations of science, we know when lunar eclipses are going to happen. And we can also backdate, and we know the days when they did happen. So we know that the lunar eclipse of Herod the Great's death, if you will, was in the year approximately 4 BC, four years before Christ. 
Now, if you were to ask New Testament scholars, many of them practice what's known as the two-year theory. So they suggest Jesus was born around 6 B.C., Because Herod the Great sends his soldiers to kill all the baby boys that are two years old and younger. So what's the point of all this, Tyler? Well, really, there is no point. (laughs) Except to give you your fun Christmas fact of the day. You can use this at your ugly sweater party this week. Fun Christmas fact, Jesus was born approximately six years before Christ. And thanks, Dennis. Appreciate that one. Actually, technically, if you want to be accurate, this year is not 2021. It's actually probably the 2027th year of our Lord. So you just got six years older. You're welcome. And that feels about right after the last 18 months. All right, we've all aged at least six years. Okay, now, fun fact aside, this is what I want you to do. I want you to rewind with me back to this point in time in history. Maybe a year or two before Jesus' birth. Let's go 10 BC. And I want you to pretend that you are a faithful Jew living in the Roman Empire at that time. Now, you need to know your Roman neighbors think you're crazy. You're crazy. They're thinking to themselves. In fact, let's pretend you get in a conversation with them. They say to you, look, why are you a monotheist? Why do you worship only one God when you could worship many You can have your God and others just like us. Why do you adhere to these strict purity codes? I mean, come on, our gods are wild. Oh, why do you not eat pork like bacon? (laughs) Bacon, let me tell you, it's delicious. Oh, and here's the most important question I have for you. Why do you keep claiming that you are God's chosen people? Rome is forever, Caesar is Lord, and look around. Clearly, you are his subjects. Now, that would be tough to argue with 2,000 years ago because if you look around, Roman domination, the pagan presence of the empire is quite literally everywhere. Let me show you. First, if you look around, what you'll see is that Rome controls both your leadership and your land. Your leadership and your land. Uh, The Roman governors of your land at the time Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, those are two of the more popular ones. They're put there by Rome. Your high priests in the temple, they're put there by Rome. Yeah, see that hand in the back? Go ahead. Tyler, I thought the high priests were supposed to come from the line of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. Well, they are, except for the fact that from the time of the Hasmoneans on, the high priesthood becomes corrupted. They're basically a lot of power-hungry guys or people who are just loyal to Rome and ready to do their bidding. On top of that, they also control your high priestly vestments. They've got them locked away over in the fortress of Antonia, which means that your high priests can't walk in the temple and offer sacrifice except on Rome's terms. Not only do they control the vestments, but they control the temple. Did you know that one of Herod the Great's great contributions to archaeology today was the fact that he built this massive complex around the Jewish temple? It's amazing. If you go over there, you'll you'll see it firsthand. Now, Herod couldn't touch the temple because the temple had very, very um, specific specifications for how it was to be built in the Old Testament. But he could build around it, and he did. He built this massive complex, created one of the largest building complexes in the land. People would travel there. It would bring tourists and tourist money in. 
But the fact remains that you could not walk into your temple and worship without looking around you and having to stare right in the face of Roman domination. Oh, and speaking of all that money, Rome would help themselves to the temple funds if they needed to for public works. Pontius Pilate did it. This is the nature of your existence in the land. Now, it doesn't stop there. Second, you also need to know that Rome is systematically trying to strip away, to dissolve your unique way of life. We might call this the Romanization process. Basically, they're trying to strip away your unique ethnic and religious identity as a Jew and replace it with Roman cultural values. They do this in a variety of ways. One of the more, uh, you know, uh, I, guess, I guess one of the, one of the cooler ways um, is, uh, is by how they would plant cities. So I want to show you something. These are, I got three pictures for you of an ancient city called Sepphoris. I've actually been there, seen this with my own two eyes. This is Main Street of Sepphoris. You can see they kind of built it out with stone. This is uh, the theater that you would find in ancient uh, Sepphoris. And then the next one is the ancient Mona Lisa. It's a mosaic in Sepphoris. They literally call it that. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up uh, Sepphoris is because uh, this, uh, this Roman city was only three miles away from Nazareth. And Nazareth was where Jesus was raised. In fact, it was in Jesus's childhood, young adulthood, that Herod Antipas actually ordered this city to be built out and up. See, this was part of the Roman strategy to Romanize those country folk who might not ever run into too many Romans. You put a city out in the country, like a country region like Galilee, and then guess what? People come there for jobs, people come there to shop, people come there for commerce, people come there for entertainment, and then they take back with them Roman culture into their world, well, into their what once was conservative villages and neighborhoods. Now, you better believe Jesus went there. I guarantee you, Jesus went there. In fact, Jesus' profession, does anybody know what his profession was before his ministry? We, we say it's a carpenter. The Greek word there is tectone, right? Tectone. And a tectone would have actually been more familiar with stonework than woodwork. So you better believe that when Herod Antipas orders the build out of Sepphoris, Joseph and Jesus, the stone workers, would have put their hard hat, grabbed their lunch pail every day, and made the three-mile walk to Sepphoris. Uh, show the theater or the road again. You want to see something that Jesus built with his own two hands? Contrary to the Passion of the Christ, where we see Jesus building like wooden chairs that would go under your kitchen table. I want that chair, Jesus. No, it probably looks more something like this. You can go see it for yourself. Now, that's not it. Not only do they control the land and the leadership, not only are they trying to Romanize you, but they also are ready to squash out any dissent if you push back. There were other Messiah movements than Jesus. And anytime they got enough of a following, these Messiahs would end up just like Jesus, dead. Because that's what we do in Rome with rebels. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. Pretend like you live here. Rewind. Tend to be sick, like you're living during this era. I want you to ask yourself, how does this make you feel? How does it make you feel that they've corrupted your priests and your temple? How does it make you feel you can't even worship without being reminded of your pagan overlords? How does it make you feel that they're trying to strip away your religious values 
from your villages, from, from your culture? How does it make you feel that there are Roman soldiers everywhere ready to cut down anybody who pushes back? How does it make you feel? Or let me ask it to you in the words of your Roman neighbor. Why do you keep claiming you are God's chosen people? Come on. <laughs> Rome is forever. Caesar is Lord. Look around. You are clearly his subjects. Now, if you find yourself there, there's really only one thing you can say in response to your neighbor. It sounds something like this. Well, just wait. Just wait, because God eventually, we believe God will keep his promises. To which your Roman neighbor might respond, what promises? Now, there are many promises that the Old Testament points to. But I think most of them can be summarized, if you will, into a couple of big theological emphases. So let's just kind of run through the Old Testament here real quick. Here's the first big emphasis, all right? This was central to Jewish identity, especially in the first century when Jesus shows up first. The first promise they believe is that the family of Abraham was somehow, some way going to be God's answer to the sin of Adam. Central to Jewish identity was this, the family of Abraham. Somehow God's gonna use the family of Abraham to resolve and redeem the sin of Adam. Genesis 12, chapter one, we see God uh, actually give this covenant to Abram. He says, Abram, leave your country, your relatives and your father's family, go to the land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. You'll be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And here's the key. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Central, central to your identity. Now, quick question for you. What comes before Genesis chapter 12? That's right, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Exactly. And in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we see the world created and then corrupted by human sin. So Genesis 12 is literally the biblical solution to the sin of Adam. It's a promise of Abram. And fast forward from this time to the day of Jesus, you better believe that they were holding on to this promise. Now, here's the only problem with this promise, though. If you read the rest of the biblical narrative, what you see is that... These people who are supposed to be the solution to sin are, well, sinners. They're just as bad as the rest of them. All of us fall short of the glory of God, right? So what are we going to do when the sin solution is corrupted with sin? Well, this brings us to the second emphasis that sort of sums up the rest of the story, and that is this. God's going to keep his promise anyways. God's going to keep his promise to the family of Abraham and to the world despite Israel's sin. Now there's this fascinating moment that happens in, in Deuteronomy. Um, okay, so uh, fast forward from Abraham, lots of things happen, patriarchs, they go to Egypt, they end up in Egyptian slavery 400 years. Finally, Moses leads them out in this amazing exodus where they literally somehow overcome one of the military superpowers of the day. They're in the wilderness. And God restates this Abrahamic promise, if you will, at Sinai. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, but to summarize these three chapters, because we don't have time to read them all, this is basically the Sinai covenant for dummies. If you obey, you will be blessed. You will be the blessing. If you disobey, it's not gonna go well. You're gonna end up, you're gonna be punished. You're gonna end up in exile. You remember Egypt? It's gonna be that part two, except it'll just be a different foreign overlord. And guess what? You get to choose. 
blessing or exile, obedience or disobedience. Now, if you read Deuteronomy 28 through 30, in Deuteronomy 29, Moses adds his own little commentary and uh, he's like, look, okay, let me just break the suspense. I know you. I know you, Israel. So I know what you're gonna choose. And it's not the blessing path. You're gonna choose disobedience. So exile is in your future. And if you read on through the story, he's right. And yet, if you read on through the Hebrew scriptures and the story that they tell, you also see that God is faithful. He continues to restate the promise again and again and again and again. I'm gonna somehow use this family of Abraham to resolve the sin of Adam. I'm faithful to my promises. Now, uh, I'm gonna give you several restatements here. Uh, the most popular of which is, uh, is the one that was given to David. So, I mean, for note takers, just, just hold on with me here, okay? Uh, first, uh, the great son of David. The great son of David. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. Nathan, on behalf of God, says to David, uh, for when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I'm gonna raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring. I will make his kingdom strong. He's the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. There's a great son of David coming. Now, many people think, it's Solomon probably at that time, right? Unfortunately though, Solomon, he asks for wisdom, which was great, but then he also fills up this huge palace he builds for himself with lots of wives and concubines. And one of the wives is uh, like a daughter of Pharaoh. So he basically takes them back to Egypt. It doesn't go well for Solomon. And if you read First and Second Kings, it's just like this story of all the kings that come after him and they're asking, is this the one? Is this the great son of David? Is this the one? Is this the great son of David? And it's like, nope, 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 and nope. Even the good kings are not that good. And yet the promise still stands. Isaiah chapter nine, the prophets pick up the great son of David promise and they restate it over and over. This is a popular Christmas passage that we use. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of who? His ancestor David for all eternity. Now, there are other ways that the promise is restated. How about exile? Okay, well, eventually they're ex the, the southern kingdom is exiled by the Babylonians. And as they're being exiled, Jeremiah restates this promise as the new covenant. You've seen this new covenant language? Jeremiah says, uh, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. The covenant will not be like the old one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. They broke that one. I will put instruction, uh, my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. I'll forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Hmm. Later from within Babylonian exile, Daniel the prophet restates the promise um, as a super jubilee. Now you guys know, da Daniel actually does his work from within. He's, he's taken captive during the Babylonian exile. He's basically enslaved by the government and from within Babylon, he does his writing and prophesying, if you will. Okay, so one night um, he's like praying to God, when are we gonna get out of this mess, right? Get God, when are you gonna get us out of this? And uh, Daniel chapter nine tells us that Gabriel is sent to him and he has a message. Uh, Daniel nine, verse 21 says, as, uh, as I was praying, Gabriel came uh, swiftly to me, the time of evening sacrifice. 
<laughs> um, he explained to me, Daniel, I've come here to give you insight and understanding. A period of 70 sets of seven, interesting, has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, put an end to sin, atone for their guilt, bring in everlasting righteousness to confirm the prophetic vision and to anoint the most holy place. Now, uh, to Daniel, if he's doing the math, this answer would have been pretty deflating. 70 times it's 490 years, God. Doesn't look like I'm gonna make it out, Right? But for Daniel, it wasn't necessarily about the math as it was about the number seven. You see, seven was a special number to the Jewish people. If you know their story, you know that after six days of creating, God rested on the seventh day. And so every seven days, they practice a Sabbath. And every seven years, according to law, they practiced a Sabbath or a sabbatical year. And then every seven times seven years, they would practice what was called the Great Jubilee. It's the year of Jubilee. Now, have you read much about this before? The year of Jubilee was an amazing year. It was literally a once in a lifetime, literally once in a lifetime, because it's only every seven times seven, the 50th year, a once in a lifetime opportunity for slaves to be set free, all debts to be forgiven, and everyone, every family given a fresh start. So what is Daniel hearing in this prophecy? He's hearing soon, soon. The 70 times seven. Great super mega jubilee is coming and it's gonna be the greatest redemption, the greatest restoration, the greatest moment of forgiveness that we have ever seen. Now, for all my historical buffs, are you still with me? Wow, are you, is anyone still with me? Okay, all right. This, the reason why I ask is because this brings us to Matthew's Christmas story. We gotta do the back work if we wanna understand Christmas. I'm just saying. All right, because in Matthew's version of Christmas, there's Matthew's version, there's Luke's version. They're different. In Matthew's version of Christmas, it's almost as if he's having this earlier conversation with our Roman neighbor. Because in his presentation of Jesus' birth, he ties all of these beautiful threads of promise together into the tapestry that is Jesus. Let me show you. Okay. First, Matthew starts his gospel and his Christmas story off in the most exciting way possible with a frantic car chase through a crowded populated area. It's amazing. Let's start there. No, it's a family tree. It's terrible. It's boring. Um, he starts us with a genealogy. Matthew chapter one, verse one. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. And then the next 17 verses are just a bunch of names. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. It's biblical ambient, y'all. I'm just saying. Unless, of course, you are a faithful Jew in, I don't know, the first century waiting for God's solution through the family of Abraham, waiting for the great son of David to arrive and establish his forever throne. In case you missed this, Matthew summarizes it for us at the end of the genealogy, Matthew 1.17. He says, all those listed above, all the names include 14 generations from Abraham to David and then 14 from David to exile and then 14 from exile to the Messiah. Now, uh, to be clear, this genealogy does not include every person in Jesus's family tree. That's not how ancient genealogies work. That's one of the places where our friends and answers in Genesis get it wrong because they try to calculate the date of the earth based on biblical genealogies. And they don't include all the names, all right? They don't. 
What Matthew's doing here is he's giving us specific names, specific historical mile markers, and also specific numbers in order to signal to us promises if you are a faithful Jew who knows your Hebrew scriptures. I've diagrammed it out for you. Did you notice that there are seven plus seven generations from Abraham to David? And then there are seven plus seven more from David to exile. And then there are seven plus seven more from exile to Messiah, making Jesus the what? The seventh seven. He's here, Matthew is yelling through his genealogy. He's arrived, the family of Abraham, the great son of David, the super mega jubilee is here. He has a name, his name is Jesus, and he's brought about the greatest redemption and moment of forgiveness that history has ever seen. This is what we have. Now, as uh, you read on through Matthew's Christmas story, he continues to shout, he's here. This is the child of promise. I want you to notice how meticulously God actually guides the Christmas story on according to Matthew. Every section of Matthew's Christmas takes place according to God's direct intervention. I've sort of diagrammed it out for you. Uh, There are five scriptures, four dreams, and one star. All sent by God. Notice. First, uh, Joseph trusts Mary's unexpected pregnancy. Why? Because of dream. Then Emmanuel is born, according to scripture. Then Magi find the way because of a star. Then the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, according to scripture. Then the Magi hide Jesus' location from Herod because of a dream. Then Joseph escapes Herod into Egypt because of a dream. Then the mothers of Bethlehem weep over injustice, according to scripture. Then Joseph returns from Egypt after Herod's death, according to scripture, and because of a dream. And the family settles in Nazareth, according to scripture. Did you see? When you fast forward on from Matthew's uh, birth story, in Matthew 18, there's this interesting interchange between Jesus and Peter. Can you guys go back to that scripture? In Matthew 18, uh, you see Peter come to Jesus and say, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. Now, when I was in Sunday school, I always like did the math and I was like, geez, 490 times. Okay, one, I forgive you. Two, I forgive you. 398, I forgive you. It seems like overkill, Jesus, to which now, since you are a historian and you are a faithful Jew 2,000 years ago, you know that's not what Jesus is getting at at all. He's saying, rather, with my kingdom comes the super jubilee. This is the sort of forgiveness we bring as members of Jesus' kingdom. So look, as we reflect on Matthew's Christmas and then later on his gospel, we can't help but see God's promise-keeping faithfulness culminating in Jesus. God will put his thumb on the scale. He will bend the macro arc of history. He is faithful to his plan, unconditional in his love for sinners. He will send angels, stars, dreams, whatever, to bring scripture and his promises to fulfillment. In fact, if necessary, he'll get the job done himself. Emmanuel, God with us. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul sums it up well. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen ascends to God for his glory. Summary, we worship a God who keeps his promises. Now, let me bend this practical here. I think one of the most destructive things we do with this beautiful aspect of our promise-keeping God is on the regular, we take God 
and we attach to him promises that he never promised that he would keep. And then we get mad and frustrated with him when he doesn't. Do you do this? I know you do this. Okay, uh, so I call this prosperity theology. That's what it is. And I wanna talk with you about it for a second because it's something we need to root out of our faith. So Kate Bowler is a historian from Duke. She's one of the world's experts on the prosperity gospel movement. She wrote a nerd book that's fascinating called Blessed. You don't wanna read it, but maybe you do. But it's, it's good, it's blessed. And um, in it, she makes this really interesting distinction. She says there's two kinds of prosperity theology in America today. There's hard prosperity and soft prosperity. Now, hard prosperity is the kind that you've probably seen before kind you're familiar with. It's those dudes on TV that are like, um, you know, if you just have enough faith, you can throw away your blood pressure medicine. Don't. (laughs) If you'll just give $100 today to my ministry, then God will throw open the floodgates of heaven and give you a thousand in return. Don't. I don't know, I, I I was literally saw this advertisement uh, several months ago, of this pastor who was selling COVID hankies. <laughs> if, you, if you just buy the COVID hanky for $17.99, you'll be covered by the blood of Jesus. You won't have to worry about it. Look, y'all, don't. Don't. Stop funding these ministries because they're ridiculous. And you know they're ridiculous, right? Hard prosperity is, is moved to the fringes. It continues to shrink. Don't. Now, hard prosperity is not what I'm really worried about, though. It's the soft prosperity that's kind of made its way into our church. And I guarantee you it's in your heart. What's soft prosperity, Tyler? Well, this is what it is. Soft prosperity is that unspoken belief inside of all of us that thinks, if I just live a good life, if I just obey God and I come to church and I give a little something to the Christmas Eve offering and you know, I don't do any of the bad sins like those people, then God will give me a good life. And by good life, I mean, you know, relational, emotional, physical health and well-being. Now, I want you to know that God actually does not promise any of that ever. I wish he did, and we want it to be true. We do. This side of heaven, we so want it to be true, but God doesn't promise that this side of heaven. Now, you better believe that a lot of these best-selling Christian authors and a lot of these megachurch pastors better watch out for them. They know. They know this desire is in us, and so they play on that desire with the all-hope, super-positive power of positive thinking. Here's five ways to manipulate the principles from the Bible so you can get a good life from God. You ever heard the sermons? Here are five steps to financial freedom. Here's five ways to better relationships. Here's five ways that you can get balance over burnout. Here you go. And it's all about you, right? Notice all of a sudden church and God becomes about the consumer. About you. Now, I'll just go and say I wish this was true. I wish prosperity is how it works. I wish we could manipulate God. In fact, I wish it was true because the pastors of these churches have private jets. And let's take an offering. You know what I'm saying? Like, no. (laughs) I wish it was true. 
But here's what I've come to believe. I've come to believe that one of the top five things that ends up causing more people to deconstruct their faith as they move through life than anything else is this naive, soft, prosperity gospel that we've allowed into our lives. Because see what happens when it doesn't work. Eventually it won't work, I promise. You know this. You've been around long enough to know that life is hard. So what happens when it doesn't work? Or to be more direct, what happens when following Jesus actually feels like carrying a cross? What happens when obedience to God actually leads to your reputation getting drugged publicly? What happens when it causes the loss of relationships, both loved ones or business relationships? What happens when following Jesus means you grieve or you repent or you lament? It's not all positive thinking. Or what happens, God forbid, when following Jesus leads to actual physical persecution like some of our brothers and sisters are experiencing around the world today? What happens then? You see, bottom line is this theology ain't Jesus. It ain't Jesus. Prosperity theology teaches us both hard and soft that good people get good lives and yet Jesus points to quite the opposite. Sometimes good people, sometimes the best people get crucified. This ain't worship either, by the way. See, prosperity theology teaches us that if we just do it right, we can manipulate God to give us what we want. But the posture of worship is exactly the opposite. We ask God to manipulate us into what he wants. I'd go as far to say that this is what taking the Lord's name in vain looks like. It's not when you accidentally say, oh my God. That's why I was, and by the way, don't use God's name flippantly, right? That's not taking God's name in vain. Taking God's name in vain is when you invoke God's name and attach it to a promise that he never promised to keep. And you bring dishonor to him because of it. And it's in, it's in us all. I guarantee it. Think about your own prayer life. You want to test yourself right now? Think about your own prayer life. What do you pray for most often? Well, if you're like me and every other human being, um, you pray for health, blessing, healing, help for family needs, resolution to life problems, success at work, and safety. And I want you to hear me say there is nothing wrong with praying for those things. You should pray for those things. But God never promises to give us any of those things. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father. No, okay. no. Now, now the, the reason why I say this is because I want you to love God for who he is for who he actually is. And it's actually quite easy. So what does he promise? Well, the list is far better than that. Let me take you through a worshipful day in the life. And I want you to think about the promises that we can actually count on. First, each morning when I rise, he promises me new mercies every day. Praise God. As I move from the bed to the bathroom and see the disaster in the mirror, he promises me that disaster is the very image of God. When I move downstairs to my seat and I start my day with prayer, he promises to listen and that prayer changes things. When I open my Bible and ask for wisdom and illumination, he promises to give it. Then when I head to the kitchen and I start the daily chores of doing dishes, taking out the trash, straightening up the living room, God promises to infuse those ordinary moments with actual spiritual transformation. 
Then as I make breakfasts, pack lunch boxes, wipe noses, load kids in the car, and take them to school. God promises that those small acts of service are what make me truly great in the kingdom of God. Then when the worries of the day start to bug me, he promises that if I seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, then all these things will be added to me. I have no reason to worry. Then when my body starts to hurt later in the day or my mind starts to get foggy about mid-afternoon, God promises me that even then as I age, my body is still the temple of the Holy Spirit. When I check my bank account and I see how much money we've given away, God promises that I'm storing up treasures in heaven. When disaster strikes my old Kentucky home, God promises me to use me as an actual instrument of healing if I'm willing. When I get into a fight with Lindsay, he promises to give me humility through the Spirit. When I screw up, he promises me grace upon grace upon grace. When I screw up again, which I always do, he promises me that I am unconditionally beloved, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. When I am afraid, he promises me that he's conquered even death. In my times of desperation, he promises me that his grace is sufficient for me. When times where life feels irreparably broken, he promises me he can work all things for the good. In times of loneliness, he promises me I'm adopted into the family of God. In times of uncertainty, he promises me he's good and trustworthy. In times when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he promises to be my shepherd. In times where I feel overwhelmed by the brokenness of the world, he promises is that one day it'll all be made new. And in times when I feel like God may be distant, he promises me that he is Emmanuel, the God who was and is and will always be with us. And you can take those promises to the bank, y'all, because God keeps his promises. What else is the Christmas story about? if not that. In the seemingly meaningless details like 14 generations or the genealogy of, we see the promise keeper. In the miraculous details like stars and angels and dreams, we see our promise keeper. He keeps his promises. So today as we transition into a time of communion, as we always do to close, and as you transition this week, into a life of worship in the ordinary moments of life. I wanna encourage you to remind yourself of your promise keeping God and to renew your commitment back to him.